Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as I, as we commit our time in the word to the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to know that you have given us the answers to so much. Thank you for the privilege of being able to shepherd so many inquisitive minds that desire not to argue, not to fight, but to know you better, to understand themselves better in light of who you are. I pray for clarity and wisdom and understanding and teaching and growth as we cover these various questions this morning. Use us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning is our fifth Sunday Q&A, and what that means is whenever there are five Sundays within one month on the calendar, what we like to do here at Grace Church of the Bay Area is take that time to answer your questions. And this happens three or four times a year. And this year, uh, on May 31st, it is one of those times. Uh, outside of these fifth Sundays, if you are not familiar with our church, we do uh, practice what is called expository preaching. And we do find ourselves in a verse-by-verse, even word-by-word study of First Corinthians uh, but we are taking a break for this f- fifth Sunday Q&A, and uh, we will be back in 1 Corinthians next week. Well, I want to get to these questions that have been submitted uh, over the months. Uh, usually, uh, we kind of have a, a dialogue uh, fashion uh, with one of our deacons in the church. Of course, with uh, Shelter in Place, we won't be doing that this week, so I will just be reading the questions and then answering them here uh, from the pulpit. Well, this first question is, is it okay to take a break for one or more Sundays? Or, excuse me, is it okay to take a break from church for one or more Sundays? Now, I do want to mention that this particular question was submitted a few months ago before shelter in place. And so, uh, my understanding of this question is not just, is it okay that we're live streaming or we're not meeting for church? That's a separate issue. Uh, which I've addressed uh, previously. I'll address that briefly. Um, but if you can imagine just being back at church and he's asking, is it okay if we just not go to church for a couple weeks? And and indirectly that would apply, of course, to the live stream as well. And I know it doesn't feel like it as much. Uh, it's kind of like TV where we can just come in late or turn it off or pause it or whatever it, it may be. Um, there's less accountability um, almost no accountability uh, if, you, if you're if you living alone to going to church because no one knows if you're there or not. And so uh, this definitely applies perhaps even more so to shelter in place uh, when it's easier to not go to church as it were or to join uh, a live stream. And so, um, but just church in general, okay, not just live streaming. I would turn you first to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, and this is actually a verse that you might have heard brought up um, by me, but also other Christians and other pastors during this time, and where people are are trying to figure out if we should um, disobey uh, county and state orders and meet together as a church. Are we violating this passage by just live streaming? And um, that's the context in which it's been brought up most recently these days, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. The writer of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Okay, that's a whole sermon in and of itself, right? But verse 25 is the key verse. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So first, Briefly, because it, it, it's not part of the question, I do want to say that part of going to church is to considering, in verse 24, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That means to think deeply. That means before you go to church that you should think carefully of how to encourage one another to be a better a Christian. And verse 25 is the main passage, not forsaking our own assembling together. That, of course, is church. That doesn't mean you need to be every time that Christians are hanging out that you should be there. This is speaking especially about when the church gathers together. Now, when you look at verse 24 and 25, you understand that it's about others, right? It's about 
uh, worshiping with others. It's about encouraging others. And it's about honoring God, of course, and worshiping corporately. And he says, all the more, as you see the day drawing near at the end of the verse. So, in other words, all the more as the world gets worse and worse, which is actually a question I'll answer uh, a little bit later. Now, the key to answering this question is the word forsake in verse 25. Do not forsake. It means to neglect, to leave behind. Okay? So it means that you have consciously said, I am not going uh, to church because you don't want to be there. You don't want to be a part of the body, whether it's uh, permanently or whether it's just for a Sunday, okay? Now you say, well, obviously that makes sense. If you aren't going to church, it's because you've chosen not to go to church. But let me clarify. What this verse means is, if you happen to have to work on a Sunday, you're not forsaking the church. Now, on a side note, if you have a job that makes it so you can, you have to miss church all the time, meaning you work every Sunday, you need to change jobs, but that's another issue. If you're sick and you can't go to church, right? that's not forsaking the assembling uh, together. And when, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking towards meeting together again, and the San Mateo County Ordinance says that we need to strongly discourage uh, those in high risk, which is now those 50 and over, not to come to church. Well, if you choose to obey the ordinance, or the suggestion, because you're over 50 and you don't go to church when we start meeting again, that's not forsaking the church. Okay, This is a willful decision to not be a part of the church, either for a morning, a couple mornings, or forever. Now, uh, I always want to give you the bigger picture. My question back would be, why do you want a break? Again, if it's work or even you're on vacation, right, or an international pandemic, that's different. But if you're talking about life is normal, you can go to church, no problem. There's no risk of getting people sick. There's no risk of uh, losing your job or whatever it may be. Or, you know, um, why do you want to take a break from church? You have to ask yourself and dig deeper. Uh, for example, if you need a break from, like, family gatherings, Right, I'm just I've I've had enough. I'm not going to go to the, the family Christmas party this year. Why? Are you too busy? Are you too tired? Is there a particular family member that you're tired of arguing with? Then, if there's other issues, you need to find out what that issue is and deal with it. Stop working late Saturday night. Stop uh, watching TV late Saturday night. Wh whatever it may be. Right? Reconcile with that individual at church. Repent of your sin. Um, wh whatever it may be. Right? You, you can't violate this wonderful command, which involves a privilege to worship God with a body of believers, because you won't deal with some other sin. Um, so, dig deep. Find out. Right? I would also say this. If... A church is a place where you just want to rest and be comfortable, where you can just kind of check out, where you can just be served, then you're definitely going to want a break because that's not what church is. Right? This We just saw that in Hebrews 10.24. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Church, uh, even if you're the only one who shows up, hypothetically, takes a lot of effort because you are engaged. You want to give God your best. But then fellowshipping with one another, getting past small talk, actually caring for other people takes work. And so maybe you're just tired of working and you want a break. And of course, that's the wrong attitude because it's a privilege to serve other people. Uh, if you're there, There's the other side of the spectrum. If you're focused on only serving but not on worship, of course you're going to want a break, right? You're running around saying, I need to greet people. I need to take care of this. I need to take care of the table, the refreshments and all of that. And and you see uh, uh, when, when the congregation is singing or praying, that's your time to go run around and do more stuff. Or even if it's your turn to go get lunch, bring lunch for Fellowship Sunday, which probably is not going to happen for a long time, just to, to warn you. 
um, because of COVID. But let's say you run out to the restaurant and it's just you're not worshiping. You're not getting refreshed. Of course, you're going to want a break. Um, if you're more comfortable with unbelievers than believers, of course, you're going to want a break. Right. Um, but you have to understand that the church is a gathering for believers as uh, as a break from the world. The church is a break from the world. Right? The more you live as lights in the world, the more refreshing church will be. Uh, the more you live boldly for Christ, the more uh, persecution and pushback you're going to get. And what better place to get away from that than to be in a place which is geared towards God's people. Are there going to be unbelievers at church? Hopefully, to hear the gospel, to hear the word preached. But it is for believers. That, that, that you know, the church is, Sunday mornings at church is not primarily evangelistic. It is for us. It is family time to be refreshed, to be encouraged, to serve one another. So, um, is it okay to take a break? Sure. You know, if you're on vacation and you're like, you know, it's hard to find a church. I can't go to church. I can't understand the language anyways or whatever it may be. Sure. You have to work. Sure. But if you're choosing, I don't want to go even though I can, then you need to figure out what's wrong. If it's, as I mentioned, a bigger issue with your perspective towards church, um, and or it's a it's a smaller sin that you don't want to deal with. Uh, I would also say if it's a particular church and you're you're just like, well, I don't get along with people there. Um, you know, I don't have good friends there. Um, sure, that's a, that may be an issue with the church, but first and foremost, that's on you. Right, you need to uh, love people, and uh, that's really what we're called to do. We're not called to love people. And see if they love us back. And if they love you back, then continue loving. First and foremost, deal with your own heart. Well, uh, question number two. Is God glorified in the morality of unbelievers? Simple answer is no. On a human level, God will not be glorified by people who are not doing anything with the goal of glorifying him. He is not glorified by even our morality. Unless it is a morality that has a heart behind it that desires to glorify him, which unbelievers don't have. Um, You know, morality uh, is very subjective in our world. Uh, It's objective to us because we have the the guidebook, God's word, God's character, but morality changes um, from nation to nation, from culture to culture, right? You know, there, you can look at some, Ancient false religions where their morality was to sacrifice their babies to their gods, right? Even right now, just turn on the news and there's varying views of morality, right? Am I immoral for uh, not protesting or am I immoral for protesting? And so there's really no uh, objectivity to the morality of of the world. Now, on a basic level, there is because God has given us consciences, right? But what I'm talking about is, is how that plays out in the world. And so it really is a form of legalism, thinking that anything we do can please God uh, with our works, which is what morality is. Isaiah 64, 6 says thus, this, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This is a well-known verse, right? It's, it's the filthy rags. Here in the NAS it says filthy garment. But in the NIV, which is the most uh, commonly quoted one for this verse, is filthy rags. You've heard that before, right? All our good works are like filthy rags to God. And can I be really graphic to give you an idea of, of what, what this means? How much are good works or the unbelievers' good works mean to God? Because in the context, this is speaking of Israel that had walked away from God. And so it's fitting for the unbeliever, but also fitting for the believer who thinks he can please God with his uh, works in a legalistic fashion, right? Or 
also for the believer who does good works without the right heart attitude. It's all filthy rags. And so to to go back to what I was saying, what this is, that word, the filthy rag, and if your kids are watching, plug their ears, the word filthy literally means menstruation. Without the right heart attitude for the believer or anything, any actions, moral actions of the unbeliever, the good works to God are like a used menstrual pad. It's disgusting. It's tossed out. It's thrown away. He doesn't want it. Because ultimately God looks at the heart. We understand this. The un- unregenerate, the unbelieving heart, is unable to do anything with the goal of glorifying God. That individual's works, no matter how moral or good in his eyes or other people's eyes, cannot glorify God. I do want to say as a side note, that God is glorified in the condemnation of unbelievers. You understand that sending unbelievers to hell is not a mistake. It's not something he, you you know, it's like not part of his plan. It glorifies him. The punishment of wickedness glorifies him. But that's an action of God in response to the individual's actions and even in the unbeliever's supposed morality. Okay? Well, let's go to question number three. Do you see fulfillment of biblical prophecy in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? So, in 70 AD, Uh, Jerusalem, including the temple, which was still under construction, uh, was destroyed uh, by the Roman general Titus, Titus Vespasian. This was known as the Siege of Jerusalem and was part of the First Jewish-Roman War. They wanted to destroy Jerusalem. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and I'm going to read that for you. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He says this again in Mark 13 and Luke 21. That is Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple. And that occurred in 70 AD. And basically uh, what historians tell us is that the Romans built kind of like uh, uh, the scaffolding of wood all around the temple and then lit it on fire. And the fire got so hot that the... uh, uh, the bricks or the rocks that the, the temple was built with just uh, deteriorated and fell apart. But, yes, that is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. Okay, question number four. <clears throat> is there a metric or criteria that we are judging the deterioration of the world by, or is it just in the eyes of God that things are getting worse? Also, is this a moral decay, a spiritual decay, a physical decay, and or something else? I'm wondering because overall throughout history, violent crimes like murder, rape, etc. have gone down. Slavery has been abolished. Racism is less prevalent, etc. Poverty, hunger, child mortality rates, and disease are being alleviated and point to things getting quote-unquote better. I agree that there is definitely some spiritual slash moral decay over time, such as views on abortion, rise of postmodernism, etc. But this seems to be a more recent phenomenon. If we just look at things from Christ's death to 1950s, things seem to be getting better, not worse. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And so, this is, uh, I'm guessing, a reference to the scripture saying that things will get worse. And there's several questions here. And 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 tells us that the Bible uh, is clear that there is a spiritual as well as moral decay that is occurring in the world, has occurred, and will continue to occur. 
we know also that there is physical decay uh, of the earth and um, physical decay of, of humankind as well. But let's start with the spiritual. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 7. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This speaks of the future from Paul's day, but will accelerate this uh, degeneration uh, at the the coming of Christ as the return of Christ gets closer. Now I want to jump to verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 11 through 12, says something similar. I'll read that many false prophets will arise and will mislead many uh, because lawlessness is increased and and most people's love will grow cold. Now there's a principle that we need to start off with. Um, Statistically, yes, in the last quarter century, violent crimes have gone down, according to Pew Research. But what we're looking at is at the the morality or the heart of people. And so the first thing I want you to understand is that when what the Bible is concerned with is not so much crimes according to whatever law is in place, the law of the land. What the Bible is concerned about is the heart. So we can't just look at that which is considered a crime in America. And of course, that would vary from country to country. And that brings me to the second point, is you also, whether you're looking at stats or or crimes or whatever it is, we need to be careful that we're not just looking at it from a human perspective and especially an American perspective. A lot of what you're going to see statistically is going to be in regards to the United States. And we cannot look into the word from a, uh, a, a man-centered viewpoint, right? Looking, reading human culture or standards into the word. And we cannot look at it from an American standpoint, okay? Um, so spiritually, things are getting worse, right? We can't look at stats. We can't just look at status quo. We have to look at the mindset of man, the morality of man, right? Not just crimes like rape and murder. So again, It is true that violent crimes have decreased over the last 25 years. But when you look at things like premarital sex, which is not a crime, that is on the rise. Divorce is not a crime. Okay. But even, even uh, more, uh, even harder to quantify. Right. There's more impatience. That's definitely not a crime. Anger, deceit, uh, nudity on television, in shows and movies. Uh, the status, the morality of the status quo is getting worse and worse. If you look at the recent history of America, but even if you go further down into the ancient history, um, even unbelievers had a morality, a status quo that was closer to what Scripture had in in terms of what was right and wrong, in in, in terms of uh, in terms of promiscuity and things like that. Yes, of course we. We hear of these scandalous uh, emperors and empresses and, and Caesars that just slept around and did things like that. But for the most part, that wasn't happening. Even within the home, children's roles, uh, roles of husbands, uh, roles of wives, that was closer in line with uh, what the scriptures had. 
even in a, from a non-believer standpoint. And you definitely don't see that uh, in our history. Yes, it has increased. It, it has gotten worse in America over the last 40, 50, 60 years because of various movements that the graph would, would kind of escalate very quickly. Um, but uh, it's been getting worse and worse. And, and, and that escalation, as we saw in the scriptures, is just going to speed up as we get to uh, the return of Jesus Christ, okay? Um, but again, you look at the big picture, right? Um, from 100 BC to the year 1900, there were 15 times that someone attempted genocide. From 1900 to today, in just over a hundred years, you have tripled that amount of people around the world attempting genocide. And so when you look at it globally and from a bigger perspective, you see the ramifications of a growing self, a sense of self-entitlement. Um, also, in terms of physical, right? I'm no scientist, but my understanding of the second law of thermodynamics means things move toward decay and disintegration. But even the biblical record tells us this, right? Early on, people lived for hundreds of years. Today, it makes the news if someone gets a drive-by uh, shelter-in-place parade on, on their 100th birthday because it's a big deal to reach 100. So even within our genetics and, of course, because of uh, environmental things and, uh, you know, the the... The shortening of lifespans occurred before there was CFCs and problems with the ozone layer, okay? So before we jump to conclusions and blame all of modern technology and, and environmental issues, obviously that's going to add to it with cancer on the rise and things like that, understand that this has been happening all along. So yes, there is decay in every sense up until uh, Jesus returns and the end times when everything is created anew. Question number five. Why did God have to create the earth and humans? What was he doing before? Well, God didn't have to create the earth and humans. God did not have to create anything. If you want to ask uh, why did he create it, not why did he have to, but why did he create uh, very simply, for his pleasure, for his glory. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, speaking of Christ, but speaking indirectly the entire Godhead, says that all things were created by him, but also all things were created for him. Right? Again, this is going to be a theme. We cannot look at creation or anything God does uh, from a man-centered viewpoint. Why would he create this for us? He didn't primarily create it for us. I have used this analogy before. There have been uh, creatures in the depths of the sea that have long gone extinct before any human being has seen them. And when we think, well, why would he do that if man can't enjoy them? That is such a selfish, uh, you know, self-entitled view and a misunderstanding of God's entire plan. Yes, he does wonderful things for us, but ultimately it's for his glory. And we got to get that straight. Life, salvation, Jesus on the cross, creation is not primarily for us. Yes, we partake of it. We get to enjoy it. It affects us eternally, but it is not primarily for us. Not even forgiveness of sins is primarily for us. It's for God's glory through us. And so, why did God create? To display His glory to the angels who were already created and man. Now, what was God doing before? I don't know. But I will tell you this and be prepared to get a little confused because... Uh, those, you ladies who are in the women's group, you're used to this, right? There are things the Bible tells us that we are to accept 
but we are not to fully comprehend. Not because we will someday attain to that knowledge, but because that knowledge is too wonderful for us. We will never attain to it. Study it? Yes. Know it? Yes. Understand it to the degree that you can? Yes. But don't try to understand it to the point that you question it. Just accept, for example, that man has responsibility and is culpable for his actions, and God has is sovereign over every action that you make. Okay? So, just accept that, for example. And that principle applies here. What was God doing before? Well, the question doesn't really make sense because God is timeless. Time was not created until creation. And so for God, there was no before. Before is an indication of time. And you say, well, what I mean is before time still doesn't make sense because before is an indication of time. And again, be careful we don't evaluate God through the lens of man's understanding and existence, okay? Because you take that, you say, well, then that's that God is selfish. God is just using, no, 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 don't go there, right? You're just interpreting God doing something for his pleasure and his glory through the lens of your own sin and what you do when you seek your own glory. You can't do that with God. You have to take God's word, accept it, and know, not fully understand, but know that he is different from us and not view things from the lens of, of our understanding, our logic, and our sinfulness. Question number six. I've heard that the Father is greater than Jesus and the Holy Spirit, yet they are equally God. Can this be explained in greater detail? I'm going to throw out a couple uh, technical words for you and just follow along because these are the words that we use to be very specific in answering this question. The words are ontological and economical. Ontological refers to one's essence or nature, their being. Economical refers to their role or their priority. So when it comes to God, when we talk about ontological, right, his essence, his being, we're talking about who God is, his nature, his character, his attributes. When we talk about God uh, in his, uh, who he is economically, we're talking about what God does. All three persons of the Trinity are equal. They are the same. There is no one greater than the other ontologically. They are all holy, wise, perfect. All of those attributes of God apply to all three. They have the same essence. They have the same nature, the same power, wisdom, glory, all of that. However, economically, they play different roles. That does not mean... One is greater than the other. So this plays out, their roles, plays out in how the members of the Trinity relate to the world. Again, having different roles does not mean one is less than the other. Uh, to simplify it to an extreme degree is this. Someone has to be in charge, but that, that doesn't make him more human than someone else, for example, in your office space, right? Now, there, again, we don't want to view this from a cultural or human perspective. Within our cultural, you could say, well, that guy's greater than me because his salary is greater. His, uh, you know, he started the company, whatever, but he's still human, right? He still has DNA, he has still has genetics, he still has white and red blood cells, he still has a heart, Right, assuming you know no physical deformities or whatever, and so just because the members of the Trinity have different roles doesn't mean they're lesser than one another. And talking about the roles, they all have a place in salvation. For example, salvation is based on the Father's power and love. We see that in John three sixteen. It's 
uh, put into effect by the son's sacrifice and resurrection. First John 2, 2. Okay. But salvation also comes into being through the spirit's washing and regeneration. Titus 3, 5. So they all play a role. And even as you look at the gospels and various passages regarding this, the, the equal members of the Trinity submit to one another. The Son submits to the will of the Father up to the cross. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Son and submits to the Father and the Son, but that doesn't mean they are not equal. And that's one of those things that our society has said. If you have to submit to someone, then you are not their equal. And that simply is not true when we're talking about ontology. Okay? This is a voluntary submission in respect of roles. And again, we, do, we have to be careful. We don't define God through human and cultural norms. You know, we, we tend to think of voluntary submission as inferiority or something negative, and it's simply not true in God's eyes. This misunderstanding of the Trinity and thinking that the Son and the Spirit are less than the Father because they submit to Him I don't think, it can't come from Scripture, because the Scriptures don't say that. The Scriptures say the opposite. It comes from a man-centered thinking, and a lot of times, when you see that, the, the people who have a problem with this and say, well, why is God the Father better? Those people, almost always, also have a problem, because they think the Bible is saying that wives are less than Husbands, because they are called to submit. And so they're taking a discomfort with biblical roles in the family and saying, this must be how it is. And then they're applying it to the Trinity. And you can see how that's backwards. And it's not true in marriage either. Do you really think that God thinks less of women than men? Do you really think that Jesus died on the cross and was only thinking of men and not women? No. Men and women are equal. And that does not change in marriage. Though there are different roles. Same thing within the Trinity. Okay? Don't look at it from man's wisdom. All right, question number seven. What is the biblical perspective in regards to Christians if a mandatory vaccine for the COVID-19 is mandated uh, for all? Uh, I haven't looked into this on a legal perspective, but I don't think a vaccine can be mandated or legally required. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer this question in regards to vaccines in general. Um, because I think it would apply to this, right? Let me tell you very clearly that there are no biblical grounds to be an anti-vaxxer. If you choose to be an anti-vaxxer because of personal reasons, because of uh, research you have done on the science or whatever, um, I would ask you from a non-spiritual perspective to be fair and balanced and uh, listen to doctors and what they have to say, okay? Uh, but at the same time, um, it's not a biblical issue. I think everyone knows that uh, the whole anti-vaccination -vax movement was started uh, by a, a celebrity um, who had really no scientific background, no no place to tell people that vaccines are wrong. And then uh, this movement just started and this person was definitely not coming from a biblical perspective. Um, as a pastor, I will tell you that I was confused and heartbroken when I found out that Christians were protesting and using the Bible to support their anti-vaccine stance. It's just one more thing that people have twisted the scriptures to 
um, support what they want to believe or they believe whatever. I don't know. But please, if you want to be an anti-vaxxer, that's fine. But don't use the Bible to support it. It is a gray area. Now, I do know that there's a connection to the use of fetal cells to develop vaccines. And so some people will take that and say, we are anti-abortion. Life begins at conception. And so they kind of uh, do some spiritual gymnastics to use that. But that's outdated. That's a long time ago. That's just not happening. And it's a stretch to say that. It's kind of like uh, you can find verses to support your argument that smoking or drinking is sin, but it's a bit of a stretch, okay? Now, with an understanding that it is a gray area, I do want to give you some biblical principles to support getting vaccines. Again, the Bible doesn't say directly you have to get vaccines. But there is more biblical support for getting vaccines than there are for the anti-vaxxer movement. The first is the basis of everything, which is we are to love others. The purpose of vaccines is for herd immunity. So that there are individuals, babies, uh, people who uh, have allergies toward vaccines, we get vaccines and we protect each other. That principle is all over the scriptures, and that's part of being salt and light. Also, good stewardship of our bodies and the science God has given us. Yes, that there's a lot of evil that has come out of science, but I think we're all thankful right now for science and technology as you listen to me on your TV screens, right? I think we're, we're thankful to live in a day where there is medicine and ambulances and things like that. You have to understand that though people may use things for evil, like the internet or like science, these things are part of common grace. And God has given us these things for our good and the world's good. Common grace being God's grace toward all people, including unbelievers. Following the experts and not anti-science propaganda or celebrity endorsements is something that we need to be doing. Thirdly, we need to follow truth. God's truth, but also truth that's put out there uh, in the media. We need to be careful that we don't jump on the bandwagon of internet rumors, of of the status quo, of gifts and memes. We have to have discernment. And so please, don't just follow one person, whether it's who you're going to vote for, whether it's whether you're going to protest or not, whether it's you're going to wear a mask or not, whether you're going to get a vaccine or not. You need to, if you're going to, if you're going to fight for something and be loud and tell people what to do, then please do your research and represent Christ properly as someone who is reasonable and patient and gracious. Now, if you want to make your own decision in a gray area, that's up to you. But at the same time, please be very prayerful about it and uh, be careful we don't just jump on a bandwagon and get angry and get passionate about something. Um, we just, you know, as Christians... We need to be willing to take risks for the common good. And that's, again, that's part of being salt and light, right? We, we can't just say, we're going to preach the gospel, the people we're going to preach to, and forget about everyone else, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for your enemies. Um, trying to think about how I got to pray for your enemies from vaccines, but I think there's a connection there, Right? We need to do good, and vaccines is, is part of that. Now, again, there's, there's good reasons not to take vaccines. Right? Uh, one of my sons cannot take vaccines because of allergies. It's just dangerous for him. Right? There are other things, and so even, even if you're pro-vaccine, uh, there are reasons not to take it. That's one of the reasons I just don't see the government uh, mandating vaccines. There's simply people who can't take it. Uh, it would kill them, uh, things like that. Okay. Anyways, let's move on. 
Question number eight. Will the Holy Spirit ever stop convicting our minds and hearts if we fall short uh, or fall away as mature Christians? Um, as a Christian, and I'm going to assume the word, that phrase fall away means you, you weaken in your faith. Uh, you can't fall away in the sense of losing your salvation. But as a Christian, no, God will never leave you. The Holy Spirit is God. He will never stop doing his role. Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. God will not leave us. Now, you can't ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You can't sear your conscience. You can sear it so much that your morality takes a nosedive and you have no conviction anymore. Uh, you can do that, but the Holy Spirit's not going to leave you or stop doing what he does in his role in our lives. Okay? Um, he doesn't force us to do things, right? He doesn't slap the TV remote out of our hands. He doesn't shut down our internet when we're tempted to look at something inappropriate. We have to respond to his conviction, and um, but he will not stop doing that. Okay. Question number nine. Can you provide a biblical perspective on global warming? Uh, because of time, I'm not going to have you turn there, but listen to 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. There is a day that God is going to destroy the earth as we know it and rebuild it, uh, similar to the Garden of Eden and where everyone uh, who is a believer will be living there in their, their glorified physical bodies and it will be perfect, will be worshiping Christ. He will be there physically on the throne. So there is a day that he will destroy it. And so when he destroys it, that's when it will be destroyed. No sooner, no less. And when that happens... I believe that environmentalists will go look back and say, man, well, we sure missed the boat. God is going to destroy the world. The world will be burned up. But it's not going to be done by your using hairspray. You're not going to prevent the destruction of the world by biking to work instead of driving. Okay? Um... It's, it's just not going to happen until God says so. Also, I think a big issue with global warming is the polar ice caps melting and flooding the earth. Well, we know specifically that that's not going to happen every time we see a rainbow, right? God promised, I will not destroy the world again through this means, through flooding. How appropriate that that specific means of destroying the world, God promised to never do again, and yet this is the big issue that uh, global warming alarmists are concerned about. Again, the world will be destroyed, uh, but you're not going to prevent it by recycling or by avoiding hairspray. You won't even come close. It'll be a drop in the bucket. Okay? God will destroy it when He is ready. Now, that is the biblical perspective. Uh, if you are scared of global warming because of what you have heard in the media, um, the non-biblical perspective is, for me, is do more research, okay? Uh, because there is a lot of good scientific evidence uh, that shows us that global warming is not happening. I am not taking a stance on either. I am giving you the biblical perspective and asking you to be faithful stewards of your time and your thoughts by doing your proper research. And I would warn you, in this, as with so many things this, these days, whether it's the protests or shelter-in-place or Donald Trump or Joe Biden, do not take such a strong stance on either side that you become a jerk. Don't be rude. Don't be condescending. Don't be arrogant. Don't be a jerk. These things are all going to be destroyed. These things we need to be good stewards of. We need to vote. We need to make decisions. But all of those things pale in comparison to God's kingdom, God's love, 
And God's giving us the ability to love others, even if they loot and burn down your store, even if they call your favorite candidate a jerk and a womanizer and a a crazy person, whatever it may be. Don't be a jerk. Well, I do not use that word lightly. My kids are watching me right now, and uh, that is basically uh, as close to a swear word as you can get to our house, and I mean it. Uh, We have become unloving and rude about all, many of these issues we've talked about, all that's going on in the media, and you need to guard yourself, not just from voicing those opinions in a a rude way, uh, but also in your own heart. Don't harbor bitterness and arrogance and holier-than-thouness towards others uh, on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of the issue in your own hearts. Okay? Well, with that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that there are things that we will never comprehend because you are so far beyond us. Thank you that your wisdom is not that we, one that we can attain to so that we can profess ourselves to be gods or profess ourselves to be strong enough to earn our own salvation. I pray, Father, that you would continue to use us to have inquisitive minds, never swaying into the arena of challenging you, shaking our fists at you, or being ungodly. Help us to be level-headed and godly in all things, to know when we can study to the point where any more study would be fruitless and just frustrating. Help us to worship you through our lack of understanding and worship you through the clarity uh, of your word. In these days, Lord, help us to be uh, biblical peacemakers, not sacrificing scripture and confrontation of sin, but being biblical peacemakers in a time when more than ever our society needs salt and light for us to proclaim the gospel first and foremost, but to be salt and light, to be peacemakers, to not stir up dissension and anger. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.